Good morning. A couple of weeks ago, we were moving um, Heather from, from our place to our own home here in Siloam Springs. And on Friday evening, Angel and Matt invited us over for, for dinner, which we were very pleased about because moving is not great fun. And um, while we were there, Angel mentioned that Parker ha had uh, prepared a sermon for his, his speech class. And he gave it to us. And Parker's teaching was about discipleship. And I said, this is amazing. And, and, and I, I told Angel this, that we, that we start in this new series. And she spoke to Megan. And Megan got Parker to come up here and really do the introduction to our series on, on, on Matthew 5. And I wanted to be up here to tell you, Parker is not up here because he's not a because he's a high school kid, and it's nice to have a kid up here. Pocky's up here because I truly believe that God wanted him to be up here today. And what he has to say is absolutely profound. So, Parker, up to you, and God's blessings to you. Thanks. Good morning. Hello. Today, my message has a pretty simple meaning. Don't be a Christian. Hear me out. Now, I'm sure, mo well, at least a few of you know where the term Christian comes from. For those who don't, Luke says in Acts 11.26, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians first at Antioch. This shows that Christians didn't even invent the word Christianity. In fact, we just adopted it. This isn't the only instance of adoption, though. I'm guessing most of you have heard the song, Yankee Doodle. Well, the origin of the song is not very widely known. In fact, the English lyrics first originated in pre-revolution America and were sung by British officials to mock American Minutemen. But soon, those same Minutemen were playing it and singing it as they rushed into battle. Here, I'll read some lyrics. Father and I went down to camp along with Captain Gooding. And there we saw the men and boys, as thick as hasty pudding. Those are not compliments. I think the same thing happened with the word Christian. I don't believe it was an insult, but it definitely was not a compliment. I've always wondered, what is the Bible's definition of the word Christian? If I split everyone here into several groups and told them all to write out their definition, or the definition they know, of the word Christian, no two of your definitions would be the same. But what about the Bible? Nowhere in the Bible is the word Christian defined. That's a problem. I hear the words, I'm a Christian, but, or I'm not a Christian, but, all the time. Because Christianity has no definition, people can put whatever definition they want on it. It can be whatever they think it is. There's no requirements, nothing for us to live up to, nothing for us to strive to be. Nothing to drive our relationship with God. But what if there was? What if the word was defined with strict, strict rules on how to be a Christian? What if it was reading your Bible every day or praying night and day? Would that drive us to be closer to God? Would you still be a Christian? When I was little, maybe six or seven, I was at Sabbath school, and they were talking about being a true Christian in God. I was curious and asked my mom what the word Christian meant. She told me to look it up in the Bible. 
so I did, and I didn't find any definition, which confused me. How was I supposed to be something I don't understand? I've now come to believe that because it has no definition, we shouldn't be just Christians. But then, what are we? What is the church? Well, the Bible gives a great example of what to become. We should be disciples. John says in John 8, 31, So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly disciples. This sets a pretty plain example of what to do. The word abide means to act according to. So if you act according to my word, you are truly disciples. This isn't the only definition of disciple, though. In fact, the Bible says we should be like God in everything we do, which practically makes the entire gospel the definition of disciple. Now that's something to live up to. My title is pretty misleading. I'm not saying stop being Christian. I'm saying don't just be a Christian. I believe if we adopt this idea into the church, we will see a complete change. If the word Christian had actual parameters around it, like the word um, disciple, there would be less fake Christians. So today I challenge you to read your Bible. Try to become a real disciple of God. So when you're asked, are you a Christian? You could respond, no, I'm a disciple. I've known <clears throat> Parker since he was born and naming his cats great names like Truck and Dump Truck. <laughs> um, but when Michelle and I were in high school, we were on two sides of a debate. You know, you draw whatever your side is, and um, it was on the ethics of in vitro fertilization. And so I, I got the side that said that you shouldn't do that. So I, you know, I built my argument and whatever I could find to make my side. Well, and I went, and next thing I know, Michelle carries in Parker, and I lost, needless to say. <laughs> and now, irony or miracles or whatever you want to call it of all things, we're, here, we're hearing Parker's speeches from his speech class in Compass. So um, it's just really amazing to think of how full circle all of that comes. But um, this week, I came across some stats that just made me extra, extra thankful um, that we had Parker up here and that um, all this timing worked out really well. Um, and one of them was from David Kinneman from the Barna Research Group. He's given a couple of, uh, written two or three books on um, really specifically millennials and their Christian faith and how they, were, they definitely meant a lot to me as a millennial, explaining kind of how I felt in, statistically in a in the time of faith and the time that I was growing up in. But his newest research is on Gen Z, which is ages 9 to 24. And out of his research, he says that a mere 11% of Gen Z will come out as what he's calling resilient disciples, or as Parker defined, disciples of the one true God, 11%. And then, to add, if not, to add to it, my grandma texts me. She texts because she's a cool grandma. And she, she said, Megan, you got to listen to Ty Gibson. He's visiting a camp meeting. And um, anyway, this, his statistic for Adventists and Gen Z is 4%. Um, resilient disciples in the next generation. So it just made me especially thankful. I was in tears this morning preparing for this, thinking of uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm with, uh, I'm with Glenn. It's just amazing. Thank you, Parker. Um, but the thing is, is that uh, secularism is here. It's the new normal. We try to fight it. 
we try to push it back, and in the Bible Belt, we can kind of ride the wave for another 20 years, maybe, and be a, behind the coast a little bit. But it's the water that we're swimming in. And so um, this guy, Glenn Stassen, from Living the Sermon on the Mount, has this really cool perspective um, talking about the time before the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe that we're in a similar time, a time before Jesus came and the time before Jesus comes again. But he says, it seems to suggest that the people of the time, as in the time right before Jesus, did not sense that God was doing new things. Instead, angels and magic caused things to happen. Or when God was seen as active, as in Judas Maccabee's uprising, God was seen as supporting nationalistic war, which led to disaster and disillusionment. Though not all scholars agree on this interpretation, it seems to me that after the close of the Old Testament and before the coming of Jesus, the literature of the time shows that people did not have a sense of God's dynamic presence that we see in the prophets. They were under the dominion of the Roman Empire and they were disheartened by moral compromise and moral corruption. They long for God's return, for deliverance from the domination of the Roman Empire. And then Jesus comes and delivers the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for speaking through Parker this morning, and um, thank you that your word is living and active, and that uh, we just have the opportunity to look at it, that we have um, so many copies in our hands and our phones and and books that we're holding that um, we almost take it for granted. We just uh, pause right now to look at your word, and we ask that you would, um, through your Holy Spirit, speak fresh and new things to us. Maybe we've heard it a thousand times, but we just ask that Um, we would know you better, that we would um, understand your teachings, and that they would become a a part of who we are. In your name, amen. So a couple of things from the top. We have um, these little books. You'll see them. Um, You're welcome to use them lots of different ways. They're broken up by each teaching. So mine's not in there today because I'm just the intro, but um, you'll see uh, there's a couple of helpful things in the beginning and the end, and then each teaching that uh, each of the Compass teachers will teach on is broken up in a separate page. This is blank. You're welcome to take notes during the sermon, but um, my thought even more than that is that you'll take it home, and as you're reading through it that week, that you'll take your own notes. Um, what helps me a lot is like prayer journaling, kind of like taking, okay, what does what I just read mean to me? Um, but use it however you like. It's yours to keep. Um, you can bring it every week or you can leave it at home, whichever way you want to go. Um, we also have a couple of great books if you want to dive deeper. We have um, Oswald Chambers. He has a book called Studies on the Sermon on the Mount that's excellent. And then Living the Sermon on the Mount, A Practical Hope for Grace and Deliverance. If you judge it by the cover, you'll never read it. So I took the sleeve off. <laughs> this one does not have that ability. They are both excellent books, though. So if you're interested, um, you can get them on Amazon or talk to one of us, and we can hook you up. But they're both excellent things to dive deep into the teachings. But today is a very broad intro, so you're going to get like a fire hose of information. So if you get, you know, a fifth of it, you'll be doing pretty good. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about why, which the first part um, was why do we need the Sermon on the Mount? And I think looking at reality of where we're at in our time in history kind of shows why, but we'll look at some history, what's leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, and then a couple of lenses on which we can view the Sermon on the Mount, and then um, back to the why. Like, why is it so important that we're looking at this? Why are we spending our whole summer examining the Sermon on the Mount, and then how can we really apply it to our lives? How do we digest what Jesus has said here? So, 
In the book of Matthew, Matthew wrote to the Jewish people, and he was trying to convince them that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And so he sets out, and the way he structures his entire book, you can really nerd out on how thoughtful Matthew was on structuring his book to convince the Jews. But he starts out with a genealogy, so he's going to prove, like, look, Jesus came straight from the line of David in these generations. He has Jesus spending 40 days in the wilderness, just like Moses and Elijah. If you remember, Moses and Elijah came toward the end in the transfiguration to kind of show that, yes, this is Jesus. Yes, he um, supports um, or agrees with Elijah and Moses, the kind of Jewish fathers. And then he goes and says that, um, right off the bat, that Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy starting by starting his ministry in Galilee. So Jesus goes out, he calls Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and then the first thing he goes out and teaches is he goes out into Galilee and it says in Matthew 4, 23, um, right before the Sermon on the Mount teaching begins, it says that Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So in other words, everywhere, north, south, east, west, people are flocking to see Jesus, and every single one of them are healed, which is also something predicted in Isaiah about the Messiah. And then, just like Moses and Elijah, Jesus goes up a mountain and teaches revelation from God in the Sermon on the Mount. So for Moses, just as it was with Jesus, going up the mountain was about getting into the presence of God. God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples on top of the mountain. And from that mountain, he teaches his greatest vision of what humanity was like, a vision that has inspired Christians and non-Christians alike from great men like Gandhi, Thomas Jefferson, MLK, huge movements of um, equality and justice and our entire nation. There's people that, Thomas Jefferson's looking at the Sermon on the Mount saying it's like the greatest moral code ever written. So the temptation is going to be, as we look through this collection of teachings, to be, first of all, either filled with total despair. We're like, this is totally impossible, so we just throw it all out. We can't do that. I can't reach that ideal. Um, This is even harder than the Ten Commandments. I can't do it. Forget it. Or... We might feel especially confident and we may try for the next 10 years to do the Sermon on the Mount, in which case in 10 10 or so years you'll feel the same way, but just more discouraged because (laughs) there's no way when you try starting to do these teachings that you will be able to do them. So what we want to do is this. We want to look at the Sermon on the Mount, read it over and over and over. You have it in this book, you have it in your phone, and with its lens, view the rest of our lives. Oswald Chambers puts it so well, um, and I I liked it so much. It's in the front of our book in that first page. It says introduction. I'm not going to read the whole quote, but I put it there because I'm hoping you guys can refer to it over and over. Um, A little way down, it says, Beware of placing our Lord as teacher first instead of Savior. That tendency is prevalent today, and it is a dangerous tendency. 
We must know him first as Savior before his teaching can have any meaning for us or before it can have any meaning other than that of an ideal that leads to despair. What is the use of giving an ideal we cannot possibly obtain? Why would Jesus tell us this? If we can't do it, what's the point? We are happier without it. If Jesus is teacher only, then all he can do is tantalize us by erecting a standard which we cannot come anywhere near. But if we begin, if, but if by being born again from above, we know him first as savior, we know he did not come to teach us only. He came to make us what he teaches us we should be. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is having his way with us. The Sermon on the Mount produced despair in the heart of the natural man, and that is the very thing that Jesus means it to do. Because as soon as we reach the point of despair, we are willing to come as a pauper to Christ Jesus and receive from him. The knowledge of our own poverty brings us to the moral frontier where Jesus Christ works. So the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus is casting this vision of this kingdom, of what it is and what it will be like. At first, that invitation will terrify us because as we read it, it leads us to, it, it reads us and it finds us wanting. We read it and we just start slashing out all the things that we can't do. We cannot do what the teaching asks of us. But if we stay with that feeling, if out of that despair, we can reach towards Jesus, then Jesus promises us that he will turn us into the things that he asks of us. At the end of his teaching, all the way at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of the summer, we'll get there. But it's, Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Notice he doesn't say, who hears my teaching and gets it perfectly, who hears my teaching and does it all exactly as I say. Those who put it into practice, who give it a try. Anyone try to learn an instrument? Try a new sport? The first time is horrible. I mean, maybe there's like those really gifted people out there, but I, I remember practicing piano as a kid, and I never got good at reading music. All I could do is play around with it until I had it memorized. But I mean, at first, you're just pounding away at that piano, and it, it's awful. But as you go, as you memorize it, as you practice it, you get better and better. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is expecting of us with the Sermon on the Mount. He's not expecting us to sit down and play Mozart. He's expecting us to begin to practice it, to be willing to put ourselves out there and bang around on the piano for a little bit, to sound bad for a while, to have the courage to make some mistakes. So that's that first lens to view the Sermon on the Mount. To remember that Jesus is savior first, then teacher. He's certainly a teacher. He has some great things. And if you put him into practice, as we saw even with Gandhi, who wasn't a Christian, you put these things into practice and they're good. It's good teaching. It's divine teaching from above. It'll be good. But you must view him first as savior because grace abounds. And that's the way we have the courage to keep trying is because we can rest in that grace and know um, Jesus as our savior. The second lens that we must view the Sermon on the Mount through is summarized nicely by this guy, Emmett Fox. He wrote this book 
titled The Sermon on the Mount in 1932, and he says, do not imagine that you can assimilate all that it, The Sermon on the Mount, contains in one or two readings. It should be gone over and over again until you have thoroughly grasped the utterly new outlook upon life and the absolutely fresh scale of values which The Sermon on the Mount presents to mankind. He gives this example. He talks about, Glenn will probably know all about this, but the search for diamonds in South Africa, they got into this yellow clay and they started finding some diamonds and they were amazed. People are flocking there. They're getting all these diamonds in the yellow clay. Well, they dig through all that yellow clay and they come to this blue clay. And in the blue clay, they found as many diamonds in a day that they found in the entire previous year. And that's how the Bible is meant to be read. That's how the Sermon on the Mount is meant to be read. Except for unlike in South Africa where there's only two layers. Through the Bible, we can read it. And every time we read it, we get a deeper meaning. All of the Bible is, is what's called Jewish meditation literature. Which means that the, the word meditation in Hebrew literally means to mutter under your breath over and over and over. So the vision is that... Um, as we would read the Bible throughout our whole life, every day for the rest of our lives, we would read the Bible, we would be muttering it, repeating it, thinking about it as we age, and all throughout our lives, we're getting deeper and deeper wisdom, deeper and deeper applications. The first time you read the Sermon on the Mount, you may feel despair. The second time you read it, you might feel hope. Wow, this is, this is Jesus' vision for humanity. I'm so excited that that's the direction I'm going. The next time you read it, you might feel conviction. Wow, I think the Holy Spirit's showing me a place that he wants to work on in my life. The next time you may get nerded out on it and you may want to reference back and see, oh wow, where is Jesus referencing Isaiah and how is this Sermon on the Mount a bridge between the Old and New Testament? There are layers upon layers upon layers just in this simple sermon that you could dive deeply into over time. And that is the beauty of the Bible being Jewish meditation literature is that over and over as we read, we see more and more connections, more and more symbolism all throughout our lives. And that's the invitation I think of Jesus as we read the Sermon on the Mount is to continue gleaning over and over and over. The pastor that um, I heard the, the Barna statistic of 11%, um, he, I heard it as, as another pastor quoting that statistic. And um, that pastor was studying Daniel. And so he, he was looking at Daniel's life and he was asking himself, he was like, hey, what in the world? These teenagers are kidnapped totally out of, their whole world is crumbled. They're moved to Babylon, the most like progressive, secular, well-educated empire of the world. They're educated there. Um, they become these advisors. They're totally immersed in the culture. But somehow they have this supernatural faith. I mean, they're like interpreting dreams, they're understanding the destiny of nations, they're constantly praying, they are um, willing to be thrown in a fiery furnace for their faith. So how? He started asking himself, how, what happened to these kids when they were young that, that caused them to have such a dynamic faith all throughout their lives? And he caught this line at the end, um, and it says, it's just this passing line, it says, at the hour of the evening sacrifice. This is 70 years since the temple's been destroyed and Daniel is still counting his time by the times of the temple sacrifice. He's still ordering his day around life with God. 
He still has these rhythms of spiritual formation working in his life. And so what happened? How in the world did he get that so ingrained in him? And so when you turn back, um, this teacher was saying he turned back and he looked in the story of Josiah. Do you guys remember that? Some of us had it in My Bible Friends. The, you know, the little boy king who was eight and got the money to rebuild the temple or refurbish the temple. And it's this wild story. If you want to go read it, it's in 2 Kings 22 and 23. I, I was reading through it this morning. And, you know, he's this young king and they start cleaning up the temple and um, somebody comes to him and says, hey, hey, king, we found the law. And he starts reading the law and he starts looking at his country, Israel, and he's like, he tears his clothes because he can't believe how far away they've moved from, from what God has said. And so basically all these things happen. There's like a prophetess and he starts, you know, getting rid of all these mediums. And anyway, but basically he totally reorients the kingdom of Israel around life with God. And he's so convicted by reading um, what the law has said and Daniel and his friends were the generation that grew up after that revival. The revival of Josiah is what birthed Daniel and his friends out of um, those changes and into Babylon, where they were successful in a culture that was totally opposite of their faith. So I don't know about you, but I long for the presence of God like that, to move in our church, to move in our city in this undeniable way, in a time when people wonder if there even is anything supernatural. I, I long for a time when um, we see the Holy Spirit moving so obviously in our group. I want to be the kind of person who finds the lost law of God and is willing to reorient every part of my life around it. I want there to be a generation of Daniels. We have so many babies and so many young people in our group, and I want them to grow up with unwavering faith because of what God is doing with us now. Not what he will do in the future, though that's a huge thing, but what God is doing with us right now. Renewal and revival have happened in cultural moments like ours all throughout biblical history, all throughout our 2,000 years of church history, right when we get statistics like that and all the people of God begin asking, what will happen to the next generation? What will, will our faith continue is when God begins to move. When the people of God start praying desperately for his presence, doing the things that he says, Jesus comes. The presence of God is made manifest in his people. And that's what I hope that the Sermon on the Mount can be for us. That as we're reading, we're looking at this deep vision for humanity that it convicts us and that moves us toward Jesus in the same way that it moved Josiah. In the same way that it caused him to just wake up and say, what, what am I doing? I want my whole life to be ordered around what God's doing. And that might look different for each of us. We have lots of resources, as we talked about, these additional books that you can order. You also have this book that's broken up in teachings. Um, like I said, you could take notes. Um, what's helpful for me, I'm a really tactile person. I get very easily distracted. So it helps me a lot. Um, kind of the, the vision behind these is I, I ordered some uh, Bibles that... Um, came in single books like this, and on one half it had journal space. And so I would literally read a section very slowly, um, and then on the other side just start trying to talk with God about what does that look like in my life. And I think that's a great way to use this if, if, if you're the same way. Um, another thing that you could try doing, which in our day and age sounds really um, weird because we don't memorize anything anymore because we have phones, but um, is try to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. I, to be totally truthful, I wanted to have it memorized before this series, I got through chapter five. <laughs> and so I haven't got through six and seven. But um, 
this section, some of these sections are a whole page, which seems a little longer, um, but a lot of them are pretty short. It'd be pretty simple each week to, to just try and memorize a section. Um, get it in your head, start thinking your way through it. Pray your way through it, and then let it read you. Let it speak to you. Let it read what's going on in your life. We're going to hit topics like divorce, anger, adultery, money, worry, things that will honestly probably make you mad. <laughs> you'll read it and you'll go, ugh, are you serious? This is old. Or, uh, or make you think, wow, but I've already made these decisions. I've already done this. What am I, God, what am I supposed to do with that? I've already, I've already not done this. And my encouragement to you would be talk with God about it. Stay engaged. Wrestle with him. Fight with him. Figure out what does it mean for me. This is God, if this is God's ideal, this is reality. This is my life. What do you want me to do, God? How do you want me to move forward? Because that's what the Sermon on the Mount will do. All of us will experience. You know, there's, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say, if you even call your brother a fool, you've murdered in your heart. If you disrespect somebody, it's the same as murder. Because all of us can kind of go, hey, you know, I'm, I'm never tempted to murder yet. <laughs> Some of us can say that. But, um, <laughs> but <laughs> then when you hear, oh, actually, you can't even disrespect somebody, you're like, I mean, I just thought something rude a couple seconds ago. Like, I mean, the, whole, the thing will make you mad. So we can't pretend like we just envision Jesus, you know, with this flowing hair and um, sitting up on that mountain and beautiful Galilee and saying all these really um, kind of mundane things. And that is just not what this is. <laughs> this is a challenging vision of life. And it will push us to become, as Parker described, the kind of people that truly follow Jesus, a people that look so different in our culture. I think um, some really good critiques of Christianity is that um, it seems like you just have a few different views on things, but basically you have the same life as everybody else. You know, some, some very accurate critiques of Western Christianity is kind of like, well, I mean, that's a nice view. I have my view. And um, God, it's not seen that God's moving. And I think that um, if we really commit to diving in, if we commit um, and take what Parker said seriously, what does it mean to follow Jesus? If we take Jesus up on that invitation and we go deep in the Sermon on the Mount, I believe we'll see God move um, in a way that he always does, which is through renewal and revival. And I'm really excited. Thank you so much for Matthew for compi compiling your words on the Sermon on the Mount. We just ask that as we look at your words this summer that we would know you better, that we would catch your vision of humanity, that we would see where we are, the reality of where we are, and we would see where you're wanting to take us. We thank you um, for being so kind to us. We thank you for um, meeting us where we are, and, but also taking us where you want us to be. Thank you. We praise you. And... Um, we just ask for your empowering presence. We ask that um, in each of us, we would know you, we would be changed by you, and um, we would get a faith like Daniel and his friends, that through encountering you, um, we don't need our culture to agree with us, we don't need society to agree with us, um, that we would just be with you in your presence and be changed by you. In your name, amen.